Chapter Nine of the Pocket Measure by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nine. Yet lackest thou. A great trial had come to Mrs. Spafford, even the formidable one of having to say goodbye to her husband for the space of thirty-six hours and spend an entire night alone in her pretty box of a house. The firm by whom he was employed, having flinty hearts, had directed that the husband should take the first morning train to a certain inland town, there to transact some business, and the earliest return train he could hope to make was the evening one, thirty-six hours afterward. Years afterward, Mr. and Mrs. Spafford were wont to look back upon this first sharp experience with laughter, that it had really been so sharp, not that they learned to like separation one whit better than on that first day, but simply that all the strong, stern lessons of life were behind instead of before them, with their wealth of discipline, and they had come to take calmly, philosophically, even thankfully, because they were no worse, the little everyday crosses that at first seemed so hard. But this first day in which Mrs. Spafford ate her lunch alone as usual, but without being able to look forward to the six-thirty car, and the cheerful little dinner that she should have ready for two, seemed to her one week long. They had had a great time, her husband and herself, planning for that lonely night. Callie Howell had spent many a night alone in her boarding-house up in the third story, almost as far removed from neighbors as she was in this little box, with neighbors close on every side. But Callie Howell, alone and unprotected, and Mrs. Warren Spafford, with a husband to look after her comfort, were two very different beings. The said husband very peremptorily decided that she must on no account stay alone. Then they cast about them for the proper one to stand her protector during that long night. Viewed in the light of a protector, the one whom they finally selected, or more properly speaking, who selected herself, was an amusement to Callie. It happened that Jenny West was among their afternoon callers, and on being told of the circumstances, promptly offered her services as night watchman. Thus it came about that on Thursday evening it was Jenny, who, with beautiful unbound hair flowing far below her waist, sat in Mr. and Mrs. Spafford's private room, and talked, while Mrs. Spafford moved around closing blinds, turning down fastenings, and examining bolts and keyholes in that restless manner which comes over lovingly guarded wives when the protector is away. "'Oh, do sit down!' said Jenny at last. "'You have slipped that bolt and slipped it back again three times. I'll warrant it is as safe now as you can make it. Do you fidget around this way when Mr. Spafford is at home?' whereupon Mrs. Spafford admitted, with a shamefaced laugh, that that particular bolt had not been drawn before, since they had occupied the house. "'Well, then, what are you about to-night? I didn't know you had a cowardly streak in your nature. Come and sit down. I want to talk with you. I will be responsible for any robber who comes through that keyhole without your looking at it again.' Mrs. Spafford laughed and came away from the keyhole and let bolts and locks alone, but she did not sit down. 
she felt too restless and lonely to settle herself for a talk with jenny she stood before the dressing bureau and began to draw the pins out of her own hair and jenny apparently considering her as settled as she could be under the circumstances commenced her talk callie have you seen will coleman since the evening of mrs bacon's party only in the distance i bowed to him at the foot of green avenue yesterday well did you know he was half vexed with you he thinks you were unnecessarily hard on him the other night you are apt to be severe you know callie am i still i can't recall anything i said to will that sounded hard did he particularize why he said you called him a hypocrite outright i guess not jenny well a pharisee then something of the sort you as good as told him that he had too high an opinion of himself he said perhaps he had he knew some other people who were troubled in his estimation with the same fault but it wasn't exactly the thing to tell them so to their faces oh he was real cross i had all i could do to make him believe that you couldn't have meant a word you said mrs spafford turned an amused face toward her champion she was so indifferent as to what will coleman thought of her personally that she could afford to laugh my dear jenny she said did you consider that complimentary to me don't you know i always mean what i say will is evidently a little confused in his statements i said not a word to him about hypocrites or pharisees by the way there is a shade of difference in the meaning of the two words don't you think what i did was to refer him to a certain bible verse which i said reminded me of him when i read it if he sees more personal likeness there than i do surely i am not to blame and he should not attribute the knowledge to me i am sorry i offended him tell him to come and see me and explain what ought to be apologized for and i'll attend to it what i tried to do was to have a serious talk with him he disappoints me in so many ways disappoints you i don't know why he should you must be very hard to suit if will coleman disappoints you he is one of the most moral young men i know jenny said mrs spafford after a thoughtful pause i want to ask you a question now if you think it is rude you need not answer it you know are you engaged to will coleman engaged what an idea and he a clerk on a starving salary why he can hardly support himself you don't suppose he thinks of marrying my dear his salary is larger by several hundreds than my husband's oh well you people are not all like you i could never manage things as you do plan about every match i struck and all that sort of thing callie why on earth don't you burn gas the idea of your poking around here with a horrid ill-smelling kerosene lamp when the gas is in every room now what is that for economy said mrs spafford with a smiling face if you were a housekeeper you would be aware that the gas in this region is extremely expensive and makes really a startling difference in the week's accounts but my friend don't be guilty of slander this is a little gem of a lamp never thinks of smelling badly unless some ignorant person turns the wick too low 
or ill-treats it in some way. Oh, well, now, it's horrid, and you needn't pretend you don't think so. The idea of having to fill and trim the vile thing. I tell you what it is, Callie Howell, I think you have a harder time than when you were a poor schoolteacher and took care of yourself. And you see, I never could do it for anybody. I'm not used to it. It isn't as though I had money of my own. That horrid life interest which my mother has just spoils everything. She can't give away any of her money, even to me. Oh, there's no use in talking. I never could be a poor man's wife. I, by all means, advise you never to become one until you have changed your present views. There are trials in the lot which you would undoubtedly find hard to bear. There now, Callie Howell, I don't think it will do for you to talk about folks being hypocrites. Every time I have hinted at your position as being cramped or discouraging, a great deal harder than you were accustomed to, you have put on the most complacent and provoking smile, as if you were the most satisfied of human beings, and hear you as good as own that you are sorry you ever undertook it. Mrs. Spafford turned entirely from the toilet bureau and let her hair fall suddenly, and gave Miss Jenny the benefit of a pair of dangerously flashing eyes, as she said, "'You need to give very close attention to what I say, Jenny, otherwise it is unsafe to talk to you. Your habit of seizing a piece of a sentence and jumping at a conclusion makes it difficult to carry on a conversation. I hinted nothing of the kind.' I advised, and I do advise most earnestly, that you never marry a poor man until you change your present views of things, or, in other words, until you value wealth less and hearts more. For myself, I am not in the habit of spreading abroad my satisfaction, but it seems necessary to speak very plainly to you, and I have no hesitation in telling you that I would have married Warren Spafford if his salary had been three hundred a year instead of six, and that every day of my life I go on my knees and thank God that I am his happy wife. And I expect to thank him through whatever trial or perplexity that may come, and I presume we shall have perplexities and trials. I never supposed that married life was made up of continuous beds of roses, but whatever happens, or can happen, I shall continue to thank God that I am Warren Spafford's wife. Until you can be sure of such a feeling as this toward the man whose name you are to bear, without regard to the accidents of wealth or poverty, I do most earnestly advise you never to marry. Am I understood? Bless my heart, said Jenny West. I do believe, Callie Howell, that you would have made a good actress. I didn't know that you had so much fire. What a pity you couldn't have had the chance to try it. I shouldn't wonder if you could have made your fortune. The blazing-eyed young matron turned back to her glass and her hair, the light dying out of her eyes, and her mouth breaking into a smile. She believed she had been a simpleton for showing, or trying to show, Jenny West a glimpse of her heart. "'So you do not mean to marry Will Coleman?' she asked the question in her usual quiet tone. "'Not until he asks me, at least,' with a nervous little laugh. "'What makes you talk so much about his marrying? I believe he has as little idea of it as I have. 
he knows he cannot afford to support a wife. It would make him miserable to bring a woman down from a station in which she was fitted to shine, and oblige her to live from hand to mouth, as you and Mr. Spafford are obliged to do. He as good as said so. Mr. Spafford and I are very much obliged to him, the wife said with curling lip. Then, after another thoughtful pause, Jenny, I don't know but you might mistake my meaning in one respect. I am far from wishing to see you the wife of Will Coleman, and I should think there ought to be insuperable objection to him from another point of view than his poverty. I can't imagine why, Jenny's eyes flashed now, there isn't a more perfect gentleman in the entire city. He has had the advantages of good society all his life, if he is poor, and he has a real good education. I'm sure people consider him unexceptionable. Is he a Christian? Oh, well, he isn't a church member, if that's what you mean. It isn't what I mean. I am talking about being a Christian. It has always seemed to me, almost as plain as the Ten Commandments, that the Bible pronounced against a Christian marrying an unconverted person. I think it is all nonsense, burst forth Jenny with burning cheeks. How many people do it? Half of our church, I do believe, is made up of women whose husbands hardly ever come to church even. They are not members anyway, and yet they support the church with their money and all that. My dear Jenny, does your Bible read, do as half of our church does about these matters? Or does it individualize responsibilities? Well, I don't care. If I wanted to marry a man, I would, whether he was a church member or not. Whether he was a Christian or not, do you mean? Yes, I do. But Jenny, you don't mean that you would not try first to discover what the Bible said about the matter, and what Christ wanted you to do? The Bible doesn't say anything about it. How can two walk together unless they be agreed? We are agreed, said Jenny softly, with deeply flushing cheeks. I never saw any person who suited me more perfectly, met my ideal more fully than Will Coleman. And as for his being a member of the church, what difference does that make? Look how regular he is in attendance always at church and at prayer meeting. He told me himself that he hadn't missed a Wednesday evening since he came up to the branch store, and that he was a regular standby. The people depended on him as much as they did on the minister. Look at that for an example. Bless me, I've missed half a dozen Wednesday evenings this spring, and Will told me himself that you and Mr. Spafford were both away one evening. Yes, said Mrs. Spafford, quietly. My husband was detained downtown until nearly nine o'clock, and I had no one to go with. That's it, spoken in triumphant tones. Church members are always being detained, but you never hear Will Coleman making such excuses. I heard him myself once decline an invitation to a club meeting on the plea that it was prayer meeting evening and boasted over it to the next half-hearted Christian he met, I am almost certain. This Mrs. Spafford thought, but did not say. What was the use in talking with Jenny? The next question was put hesitatingly, as one who was feeling her ground. 
Jenny, are you making Will a subject of special and persistent prayer? Of course I pray for him. I do for all my friends, though I think this minute he is a great deal better than I am. I need his prayers ever so much more than he needs mine. I don't know what you mean by persistent prayer. It sounds rather irreverent to me. Then there came to Mrs. Spafford's heart the same doubtful twinge that she had felt so often before for Jenny. As to whether she herself had really the root of the matter in her, or was only, as she was so fond of expressing it, a church member. But there was still one question that she wanted to ask. She had been trying to get to it all the evening. Are you ever, uh, well, a little troubled about one of Will's habits, lest it may grow on him? No, I never was troubled for a minute about any habit of Will Coleman's. What do you mean? Then did Mrs. Spafford wish she had not spoken, but now she must go on. You know at these large parties that he attends he frequently takes wine? Have you never feared it might grow into a habit? I wonder who doesn't. There isn't a gentleman in our set, so far as I know, who refuses it. Troubled at that? The idea! Kelly Howell, I believe you would like to put all young men into a rose-lined workbox and keep the key yourself. I would like to put their names on a total abstinence pledge, she said firmly, and I don't hesitate to say that I tremble for all young men whose names are not there, unless indeed their feet are anchored on the rock and their paths shielded by Christ himself. The pledge is only a crutch, of course. Jenny West was getting very angry. For my part, she said haughtily, I would just as soon a man would drink wine as to smoke cigars. I don't see the difference between them that you seem to. Mrs. Spafford's cheeks glowed hotly now, but she steadied her voice into calmness. Yes, Jenny, I see a difference, and I think so do you, but I do not uphold smoking, you very well know yet you married a man who smokes cigars every day of his life, a dozen of them for what I know. I wonder you would be guilty of marrying him, since you are so particular. I didn't know it. The very instant that she had said these words, she wished them unsaid. Well, she might. Didn't know it, repeated Jenny. Well, upon my word, he deceived you then, this paragon of a husband and here you have been rhapsodizing to me over the bliss of your married state. Really, Callie, I don't think you ought to preach any more tonight. The hair was bound up long ago for the night, and Mrs. Spafford had nothing to do with her eyes but to give Jenny the benefit of the blazing light in them, but her voice was quiet enough. Perhaps it would be better not to talk any more tonight, since we seem incapable of understanding each other. You ought to know that my husband is not a man given to deception of any sort, at any time. He has grown up from very young manhood with the habit of smoking one, not a dozen, but one cigar a day. If he thought anything about it, he supposed I knew it, but his education has been different from mine in this matter, and he regards it as a trivial thing. I do not, and had I known of it before we were married, we should have talked about it together. 
since i did not there was no way by which he could discover my views but you know and i know that there is a wide difference between smoking a cigar a day and drinking a glass of wine a day you and i know that earnest christian men of to-day do the one with impunity and the other almost never i think neither are right but i make a wide path between the degrees of wrong but jenny even if your sneer was a true one are not the cases very different you are a younger woman than i by several years you are not only unmarried but according to your own statement unbound by any pledges or even intentions while i am married what is proper for me to say in friendly warning or suggestion to you about one who is only a friend might become a gross insult for you to say to me about the man whom i have sworn to love and honor as long as my life lasts might it not said jenny let's go to bed i'm sick and tired of the whole subject and they went to bed end of chapter nine